1972, George Carlin uttered the seven words you cannot say on television. Shit, piss, cunt, fuck, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. I was nine. And I fell in love. That was Jon Stewart inducting George Carlin into the hall at the inaugural Netflix is a Joke Festival. It's an event to honor legends in the world of stand-up comedy. And there's no denying George fits that bill. That event is now streaming on Netflix. But we're here to uncover even more about those greats. I'm Cristela Alonzo, and welcome to the hall, honoring the greats of stand-up. And on this season of the podcast, we're doing a deep dive into the lives of four comedy titans. Joan Rivers, Richard Pryor, Robin Williams, and in this episode, George Carlin. We have some amazing, funny people joining me to talk about the genius of George Carlin. You'll hear from people like Jay Leno, Colin Quinn, Kevin Smith, Lorraine Newman, Carlin's daughter, Kelly. And yes, when you do a podcast about George Carlin, you also need a Supreme Court expert. So let's start with something quintessentially Carlin, him having fun with language. Now this next thing, this next thing is about the English language. It's about little expressions we use. And we never really seem to examine these expressions very carefully at all. We just sort of say these things as if they really made sense. Like, legally drunk. Well, if it's legal, what's the fucking problem? Hey, leave my friend alone, officer. He's legally drunk. The guy had a great nose for sniffing out bullshit. Not only the obvious stuff, but he could find subtle things. The hidden contradictions we all live with and don't realize until they're pointed out. Maybe one reason Carlin was so good at it was because he had a bunch of contradictions of his own. On one hand, he was the guy who tackled the big issues, gleefully poking the eye of authority and exposing hypocrisy over and over. The FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, decided all by itself that radio and television were the only two parts of American life not protected by the free speech provisions of the First Amendment to the Constitution. I'd like to repeat that because it sounds vaguely important. But he also made jokes about goofy stuff, like farts and other bodily functions. Let me ask you a personal question. Have you ever been making out with someone and one of you has a snot that's whistling? Again, on one hand, he was one of the first counterculture pot-smoking comics out there. I was on a talk show recently and the uh, host asked me, said, what do you think about the dope problem? And I said, definitely, I feel we have too many dopes. Yes. <laughs> no question about it. But he also didn't fit the classic stereotype of a slacker pothead. He was incredibly disciplined about his work. He meticulously shaped and crafted his material. He worked his ass off to choose just the right words and make sure his routines were perfect. A lot of people don't think stand-up comedians write anything down. But believe me, it's fucking hard. And Carlin made it look easy. To Carlin, stand-up wasn't a stepping stone. It was a career and an art. So where did his drive, 
dedication, and rebellious spirit come from? To find out, we'll have to go back long before his career had even started to New York City in the 1940s. We were in the sixth or seventh grade, so we couldn't have been more than 11 or 12. That's 88-year-old Randy Jurgensen. He's one of Carlin's oldest and closest friends. He told us about growing up together and how he, Carlin, and all their friends would stir up all kinds of trouble on their block, 121st Street between Amsterdam and Broadway. On that street, there was a vacant lot, and we used to hang out in the lot. And one day, there was about six or seven of us, and George Carlin showed up, and he had pot. And he instantly, this is the way you smoke it, this is what you do. That story of Carlin smoking pot as a kid, to me, is as much of an origin story as Peter Parker getting bitten by a radioactive spider. But it wasn't just weed. Even at that early age, there were other signs of who Carlin would become. His friend Randy Jurgensen says Carlin was never a big fan of authority. He told us about when they were kids, their group of friends used to strip down to their tidy whities and swim unsupervised in the Hudson River. Whenever the police officers caught us, they would line us up and they would ask our names. And there was one time they got busted that he'll never forget. We had gotten caught by the JD squad, they call it, juvenile delinquent squad. The officer lined the kids up. The officers are very, very serious, threatening us and so forth. George was fourth on down the line. The first kid broke and gave a name. The second guy gave the name, and the third guy gave the name. And when it came to George Carlin, he said, Randy Jurgensen, I live at 1264 Amsterdam Avenue. Uh, and I mean, I, I could have killed him. I could have killed him. But that's what George would do. While this sounds cute and harmless, Carlin's childhood friends turned out to be some pretty tough characters. The crew that we grew up in, without naming anybody, I would say one committed murder, two stuck up liquor stores, and the other three, we became cops. Carlin's early life wasn't exactly a walk in the park, and his home life wasn't rosy either. His father was an alcoholic and used to beat his older brother, Pat. But by the time George was born, his dad was out of the picture. So George was raised by his mom, Mary. And as George's daughter, Kelly, told us, you can hear a lot of Mary's influence in his comedy. Mary was a lover of language and really, really taught my dad how to love words and to be curious about them and their etymology and their usage and the subtlety and nuance of language and words. Surprisingly, Kelly told us a love of language ran on both sides of her dad's family. Even though Carlin's dad wasn't around, he still might have passed on some of his talent. He was a, an award-winning inspirational speaker. So he was a monologist and had won the Dale Carnegie Award and things like that. So this gift of the gab was right there for the taking. So Carlin was a talker and he was also a thinker. And all his gabbing and questions didn't exactly set him up for a smooth ride at his Catholic school. 
He would later talk about that in his routines. But I think I was troubled too at the time by the fact that my church would keep changing rules. I would change a rule anytime they wanted. This law is eternal, except for this weekend. He dropped out of school in the eighth grade, basically. I mean, I think he made it partly to the ninth grade. He was kicked out of school at one point and then invited back only if he would write the eighth grade play. So his teachers already saw his creative potential, and they really believed in him and knew his intelligence. But he wasn't interested in high school. So Carlin was a high school dropout. And in 1954, right on the heels of the Korean War, Carlin had a pretty good idea of what might be in store for him. Carlin chose to join the Air Force so that he would not get drafted as a GI in the Army. James Sullivan wrote a biography of George Carlin called Seven Dirty Words. He got into quite a bit of trouble with his superior officers. You know, one of the several instances of him getting reprimanded, he took a van from the Air Force and drove to New York to buy weed. And then drove it back and, of course, was in a pretty big pile of trouble when he returned the van. (laughs) But the Air Force wasn't all bad for Carlin. While he was stationed in Louisiana, he got a job as a radio DJ. So Carlin, when he was on the air at this rock and roll station, he was the first DJ in the country to play Elvis Presley's latest single at the time, which was All Shook Up. Okay, then, Solid, how you doing? Lots of music coming up for you between now and 5.45. Got the brand-new Everly Brothers record, and we'll be playing both sides of it for you. In addition to listening to Elvis's latest, came out this week, and we'll get things started with the new one by Chuck Berry. Stick around. Good things happening here on 1480 at Carlin's Corner. Carlin found he liked being behind the mic more than he liked following orders. So after he got discharged from the military in 1957, he left Louisiana for a DJ job back east. He ended up in Boston, where he worked briefly at a radio station delivering the news. While he was there, he met Jack Burns, and the two of them hit it off. And they decided that they, well, they had a very much of shared a comic sensibility. They used to play the Playboy Clubs, I remember. And their gimmick was, huh, yeah, huh, yeah, huh, yeah, huh, yeah. What are you talking about? They would do that back and forth. That, of course, is veteran stand-up and former Tonight Show host Jay Leno. The album he's talking about came out nearly 60 years ago, and his Burns and Carlin impression is still pretty good. We'd like to give you our version of a children's show for hip kitties, and we call it Captain Jack and Jolly George. Today, today is absolutely the last day to send for your Captain Jack and Jolly George Jr. junkie kit. You've got to have this kit. Oh, boy. You've got to have it. And why is this the last day? I'll tell you why, kids. We were down at Tijuana, and our dealer has been busted by the fuzz. Yeah. So we're running just a little short of the stuff. Yes, right. I tell you. Now, of course, this is pure heroin you get. I mean pure heroin. No milk, sugar, no preservative, no flour added. Oh, it nice. is dynamite. I'll tell you, kid. Captain Jack and I shared a half a bag, shot it up just before the show. Oh, I'm t- I'll tell you, I'm twisted, kids. Look, look at my eyes, huh? The two took their show on the road. They spend a lot of time in Dallas at a club called The Cellar, mostly playing characters and doing impressions. They then moved to L.A., where Carlin's partner got a big break. He became a sheriff after Don Knotts on Andrew Griffith's show, and that's when the team broke up and George went 
his separate way. So Carlin went solo. It was pretty similar to stuff he did with Burns, but just a one-man show. In one of his more famous bits from back then, he would do a mock newscast and impersonate the whole newsroom. He used to come out with the skinny tie and, you know, the hippy-dippy weatherman and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was, and it still holds up. It's really, really funny. Now, the weather here is Al Sleet, your hippy-dippy weatherman. Hey, baby, what's happening? <laughs> hey, Massa, Al Sleet. <laughs> The hippy-dippy weather, man, with all the hippy-dippy weather, man. It was funny. And Carlin was finding success. He was getting TV gigs and starting to go more mainstream. The trouble was, the type of comedy Carlin admired was raunchy and real. That kind of stand-up comedy is all over the place today. But as Jay Leno reminded us, back then, a performer could never say anything like that in a club or on TV. You know, people forget Jack Parr was taken off the air for using the word pregnant. You couldn't say pregnant. You had to say in a family way. The stakes for comedians were high. If you towed too far over the line, you could find yourself blacklisted or arrested. And Carlin had seen it firsthand. His biographer, James Sullivan, has that story. In the early 1960s one night, Carlin attended a show at the Gate of Horn in Chicago. He was there to see his hero, Lenny Bruce, and the night took an unexpected turn. The cops showed up, raided the venue, and hauled the headliner away in handcuffs. And they didn't stop with Lenny. They rounded up the audience members and asked them to show their IDs. Carlin said, no, I'm not showing you my ID. So they threw him in the paddy wagon, and Lenny Bruce was already in the paddy wagon. And Lenny said to this kid, for whom he was an idol, What'd they get you for? And Carlin said, I refuse to show him my ID. And Lenny said, you schmuck, what'd you do that for? Like, you could have just shown him your ID and walked free. You don't have to be that much of an anti-authoritarian. Carlin was making good money doing a shticky material for upscale audiences. But the counterculture was taking hold all over the country. And Carlin saw an opportunity to throw away his old act and create new routines that would let him really speak his mind and appeal to a younger crowd. I remember being in college, and someone said, hey, do you ever hear George Carlin? I go, oh, yeah, the hippie-dippie weatherman. And they, well, well, he's like a hippie now. I, what do you mean? Well, he's got, like, long hair, and he's, like, kind of doing colleges. Carlin still did impressions. But now he could also tell jokes about taboos, get into the real stuff, like government, religion, and sex. Here he is, 1971, on his first solo album, FM and AM, talking about sex in advertising. I worry about the subliminal message. It's what's up front that counts. Should a gentleman offer a lady a tipperillo? And what's the big scene in the tipperillo commercial? It's a train going into a tunnel, man. You don't have to be Fellini to figure that out. But not all of the sex in those commercials is wholesome, normal, good old-fashioned American, man on top, get it over with quick. Sometimes it's bizarre. I'd walk a mile for a camel. So Carlin was doing a lot of edgy material. And remember, he had watched what happened to his idol, Lenny Bruce. 
Bruce kept getting arrested and sued for things he was saying in his routines, and it basically ruined his life. The risk that something similar could happen to Carlin was real, even in the West Village of New York where he often performed back then. But when it came to taking on the man, he didn't hold back. Here's a famous clip from Carlin's next album, Class Clown. He talks about how the U.S. government treated Muhammad Ali after the famous prize fighter refused to participate in the Vietnam War and saw his boxing license revoked in every state. He's back at work again. He's being allowed to work once again, Muhammad Ali. He wasn't for a while, as you know. For about three and a half years, they didn't let him work. Of course, he had an unusual job, beating people up. (laughs) It's a strange calling, you know. But it's one you're entitled to. Government didn't see it that way. Government wanted him to change jobs. Government wanted him to kill people. (laughs) He said, no, that's where I draw the line. I'll beat him up, but I don't want to kill him. And the government... The government said, well, if you won't kill him, we won't let you beat him up. Both FM and AM and Class Clown were huge hits for Carlin. Both were gold records. And FM and AM won a Grammy. Do you think that there's a moment in, like... George Carlin's career that really summed up or clicked with you a little bit more than other parts of his trajectory? I I mean, I'm glad you asked me that question because absolutely. Colin Quinn is an Irish-American comic from New York, just like George Carlin. And he still remembers watching his family as they listened to Class Clown, especially this one routine about a Puerto Rican priest. There was like an eight-minute bit about Irish people in New York and it was him going to confession, and he had the first Puerto Rican priest, Father Rivera. And all the Irish guys that were heavily into puberty <laughs> would go to confession to Father Rivera. Because he didn't seem to understand the sins, you know? Or at least he didn't take them personally, you know? It wasn't an affront to him. There was no big theological harangue. He didn't chew you out. He was known as a light penance. In and out, three Hail Marys, you're back on the street with Father Rivera, man. Boom. They would sit at parties, they would play that one bit, and you'd just see their faces. It was almost like catharsis for them, like, oh, yeah, we went through this insane Irish Catholic New Yorker, and it was really interesting to see what it meant to all of them. Like, that changed, like, I saw comedy, like, do something to people. It wasn't just laughs. Colin Quinn wasn't the only person who had a story like that. Kevin Smith directed George Carlin in three movies, and he still remembers the first time his parents ever let him watch Carlin on TV. My mother was like, I don't know, Don. This is a little too grown up for Kevin. And I'll never forget, my father goes, oh, Grace, don't worry, George Carlin's Catholic. When George hits the stage, he takes no prisoners with the opening line. He says, have you ever noticed that people are against abortion or people you wouldn't want to fuck in the first place? And instantly, <laughs> the crowd goes nuts. My father's laughing. My mother's going, I don't think that's very funny. You know, arms crossed. (laughs) Of course. And my mom goes, now the boy's going to be asking all sorts of questions. And my dad was like, no, he won't. And I turned to my father. I was like, dad, what is abortion? (laughs) And just buried him, threw him under the bus. My mom got mad and she got up and stormed out. And I asked my dad, I was like, what do we do? And he was like, we're going to keep watching. And we kept watching. And I got to see my old man crack up, see the things my father thought 
was funny. And this was a guy who was cursing. Nobody was allowed to curse in our house. And yes. George Carlin was cursing his full head off and getting away with it, you know, like, and making my father laugh, like, in the process. And, you know, my father wasn't just laughing because George said fuck a lot. He laughed because the things George said were funny. And, and as a young kid, watching an adult laugh at something more grown up is a real education in, oh, why is that funny? And there was no Carlin bit more educational than the routine called The Seven Words You Can Never Say on Television. Most people know it as The Seven Dirty Words. Yeah, there are 400,000 words in the English language, and there are seven of them you can't say on television. What a ratio that is. 399,993 to seven. They must really be bad. They'd have to be outrageous to be separated from a group that large. All of you over here, you seven. Bad words. That's what they told us they were, remember? That's a bad word. No bad words, bad thoughts, bad intentions, and words. You know the seven, don't you, that you can't say on television? Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits, huh? With the seven dirty words, why do you think it became what it became? It's a combination of the shock value, putting a number on something, the rhythm of shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, yes, and tits. Yes, yes, yes. And it's also interesting, I don't know if he did this deliberately, he probably did, but that and tits, like the flow, the rhythmic flow that tits was last. We can't ask Carlin why he did what he did. But we do know he was very deliberate about the words he chose in his routines. Here he is taking a question about it. What are the most dramatic ways you're forced to alter your performances for television? Well, the, the most important alteration is that you can't use the body of language that's generally called dirty or bad or filthy language. And that's not a big restriction if you have something to say. Obviously, you don't need a series of, uh, of street terms to make your ideas clear. But they're very useful at enhancing ideas and enhancing characters and in giving the element of, of reality to speech that, that you want. You can suspend that for six minutes on television. I wouldn't like to suspend it for two hours on the stage because I think it would take something away from... Although I'm sure I could do two hours without it, I just feel that I'd missed a lot of important emphases if I didn't uh, have access to the whole language, you know? Film director Reggie Hudlin grew up at East St. Louis in the 1970s. And he still remembers when George Carlin put out his follow-up to Class Clown. There was this album that came out called Occupation Fool, right? And Fool with an E on the end, the old English Fool, right? And I remember buying that album. And, like, buying an album was a big deal, right? That was a big financial commitment to buy an album, to buy a comedy album, and it's a white guy. That was me just, like... Going over to the other side. Okay. And the album lived up to the hype. Nothing but hits. Pow, pow, pow. One of those hits was a bit called Filthy Words. It was Carlin's follow-up to the Seven Dirty Words routine. And he used it to reconsider his original list. Uh, also, cocksucker is a compound word, and neither half of that is really dirty. The word the half-sucker, that's merely suggestive. And... <laughs> 
The word cock is a halfway dirty word, 50% dirty, dirty half the time, depending on what you mean by it. Uh, remember when you first heard, like in sixth grade, you used to giggle, I'm the cockroach three times. Hey, the cock three times, it's in the Bible, cock is in the Bible. Challenging the status quo of what you could say in public was a risky thing for comedians to do back then. It destroyed the life and career of Carlin's idol, Lenny Bruce, but it catapulted Carlin into a new level of fame. Even so, his daughter Kelly remembers how scary it could be to watch her dad perform. It was at the Milwaukee Summerfest, which someone once described me as an island of sausage surrounded by a river of beer. It was a summer day in the 1970s, and Kelly and her mom Brenda were off stage watching the show. My dad was on stage, and the promoter came up to my mom and said, um, the police are here. They're not happy with the language he's using, and they're going to arrest him. And both Kelly and her mom knew that could be really bad. Now, my mom knew that my dad had drugs on him, coke and weed, and I was privy to that information, too. One thing to keep in mind, Kelly is nine. So my mom went on stage with a glass of water, and my dad looked at her like, what the fuck are you doing on stage? And she whispered in his ear, "Uh, the cops are here, they're going to arrest you, you know, exit stage left. But before he wrapped it up, it was just, this is so typical of my dad. He goes into the seven dirty words routine. Like he's gonna double down. He's gonna triple down on this stuff. He ends up walking off the stage. We run into the dressing room. My mom stashes like a baggie full of cocaine in the drum set of the drummer who's going on next. I'm freaked out. I'm like nine years old. I'm terrified. Police are going to come. And then the doors open and there's the cops and they arrest my dad and they take him away. And I am just beside myself. And my mom, luckily, she knew what to do because they had been friends with Lenny Bruce in the 60s. And she went and found herself a, a civil rights attorney. And, you know, they handled it. George Carlin was arrested a total of six times over his career, most of the time for shit he said on stage. But none of those arrests made as much news as a certain incident from 1973. A DJ at a radio station in New York was doing a show about free speech. And with a disclaimer, he decided to play Cartland's Filthy Words bit, the follow-up to Seven Dirty Words. About a month later, the FCC got a complaint from a professional moralist. He said he and his son had heard the routine while driving in the city. He felt this sort of material shouldn't be allowed on the air, and he wanted the agency to take action. But the radio station fought back. The radio station sued. They went to court against the FCC, saying that they had a free speech right under the First Amendment to air this broadcast. That's Emily Bazelon. She's a legal expert and staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. And coincidentally, she has a personal connection with the case. My grandfather, who at the time was the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit, is one of the judges who ruled in this case. Before this case, the government only had the right to regulate what was considered obscene speech. That was usually sexually explicit material, like porn. But Bazelon's grandfather argued that Carlin's bit didn't fit that description. And he ruled in favor of the radio station. 
His reasoning was that obscenity was really a, this broader, very vague category of indecent speech. And my grandfather said that the government did not have the power to regulate indecent speech over the radio airwaves. The question of whether indecent speech should be regulated to the same extent as obscene speech proved to be pretty tricky legal territory. The case went on for five years and eventually made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And if you're wondering whether the justices had to listen to Carlin's bit. Oh, my God, they better have listened to the routine. First of all, it's really funny. It would have been a missed opportunity. They don't get that much humor in the official materials that come before them. But also, I think it's really crucial to listen and to think about what Carlin is trying to say here and whether or not you think that it's indecent. In the end, the court was split. And in a 5-4 decision, the justices sided with the FCC reversing what Bazelon's grandfather had decided. Now, to be clear, this case was just between the radio station and the FCC. George Carlin himself wasn't a party. But as a high school dropout, he was definitely proud that the highest court in the land was talking about his work. The Supreme Court wouldn't be the only American institution where Carlin would make history. Ladies and gentlemen, Saturday Night Live was a brand new show back in 1975. And while he wasn't Lorne Michaels' top choice, George Carlin was the show's first ever guest host. Lorraine Newman was one of SNL's original cast members, and she remembers Carlin on that first night. I was aware that he was nervous. I could see that he was nervous when he did his monologue. And I can't blame him. This was really something that was so new. And he even says in the monologue, boy, this really is live. Talking about a live show. Wow. Nice to see you. Welcome and thanks for joining us live. His monologue that night included one of his famous bits football versus baseball. Let's put it this way there are things about the words surrounding football and baseball which give it all away. Football is technological, baseball is pastoral. Football is played in a stadium. Baseball is played in a park. But the monologue isn't the only thing she remembers about Carlin from that first show. I remember that there was this incredible sketch, which was Alexander the Great's high school reunion, and Carlin was in it, and it was cut. And I was baffled because it was so good. It went so well in in dress rehearsal, and um, it was cut. The reason the act got cut was a mystery to her then. But Carlin's biographer, James Sullivan, got to the bottom of what was going on. Carlin insisted on not being required to do any of the skits that, you know, most guests, almost every guest host on Saturday Night Live ever since has done. He said, no, no, I'm going to do a couple of stand-up sets at the beginning of the show and in the middle of the show. And you're not going to make me dress up in any funny costumes or do any of the skits or learn any lines for any of these skits. I'm not doing it. And Sullivan says Carlin created other challenges for the show's producers. Carlin at this time, we should say, also was um, starting to fall into a pretty heavy cocaine habit that he would have for the next handful of years. And by all accounts, the chaotic week leading up to the first episode of Saturday Night Live, all the sort of stress and anxiety and worry about how the first show was going to do was not helped at all by the fact that, you know, Carlin was uh, doing giant piles of blow and sharing it with some of the cast members. 
Carlin often talked about how weed and even LSD helped him as a performer and as a writer. But the cocaine had become a problem, and it was starting to have a negative effect on his comedy. He eventually weaned himself off coke. And by the late 1970s, he had arrived at a prolific new chapter of his career. It started with a comedy special on a new channel called Home Box Office. And you can really tell how new the network was because they felt they needed this disclaimer. A portion of Mr. Carlin's performance needs special introduction, at least for television. His target is language, how we use it and abuse it. Some would simply say that tonight's language is very strong. Others would say it goes beyond this and would find it vulgar. Aristophanes, Chaucer, and Shakespeare were vulgar too at times. Anyway, the segment is controversial. Even though the network seemed a little skittish about the special, Carlin's biographer, James Sullivan, told us it was the start of a decades-long partnership. It totally re-energized him and refocused him. Within a matter of the first two or three specials, I think he realized that there was a routine there that he really appreciated. Like, I got to keep working. I got to keep writing new stuff for the next special. And so Carlin kept up that relationship with HBO all the way through the rest of his life. So more than 30 years. In total, George Carlin did 14 specials for HBO. And in doing so, he transformed not only his own career, but the whole industry. He sort of created a model that every comedian works towards today. I mean, you're not really successful in stand-up comedy these days until you get Comedy Central or HBO or Netflix or some platform to offer you an hour-long special. And every stand-up comedian worth their salt today will tell you that they look to the model that Carlin created. For other comedians like Colin Quinn, producing that much content is mind-blowing and also kind of annoying. I mean, the discipline, I don't understand. How do you memorize those crazy lists all the time? This son of a bitch, I can't memorize shit that I can, five lines, and it takes me how long to memorize. That's because he went to those real Jesuit Catholic schools. That's that education. You could just see, he's a good boy. He did his homework. (laughs) Director Kevin Smith got a glimpse of Carlin's incredible work ethic when they were doing a movie together. I'll never forget, we were rehearsing on Dogma, and it was everybody. It was me, Jason Mewes, Linda Fiorentino, Chris Rock, Ben and Matt, Salma Hayek, Scott Mosher, my producer, was there, and George. We rehearsed for like an hour. We're going from top to bottom through the script, reading out loud. And then uh, it was the 90s, so a lot of us were cigarette smokers. So we were like, smoke break. And, you know, we opened the windows and started smoking like the rebels we were. <laughs> and, you know, I remember I was standing by George and, and just to make conversation. I was just, what you been working on? What were you doing here last night, George? <laughs> and he goes, I've been memorizing, you know, my writing. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's going, well, I'm I'm doing a bit for the next, you know, HBO special, my opening bit, and I'm memorizing it now. And I was fascinated by that. I was like, memorize? What do you mean? And he's going, well, I write everything out, and then I memorize it. And I was like, you write that all down? I always just assumed you were talking off the top of your head extemporaneously. And he goes, no, no. He's going, I write it, fully write it out. And I was like, can we hear it? And he goes, do you want to? I said, yeah, and everybody in the room was like, yeah, my God. We sat down, and fucking Carlin gave us command performance for, like, what, the eight people in the room. Even Affleck, (laughs) who is, like, one of the most give-me-the-mic kind of people on the planet, is quiet as a church mouse. 
as we sit there and watch George do what is easily a 10-minute spoken word bit. It was absolute fucking magic, man. The respect in that room, you could have cut it with a fucking knife. It was so thick. Part of that bit was about religion. I wrote Dogma. I was a true believer. I was raised Catholic. But, like, honestly, like, I don't pray anymore. You know, I'm a lapsed Catholic like George because of George. Smith told us shooting the shit with Carlin on set changed his own views on religion. At one point, we're between takes, and, and we're just talking about the scene, and, and he goes, you really still believe in all this shit, don't you? And, you know, I knew he was a lapsed Catholic, but I was yeah, you don't? And he goes, no, I'm smarter than that. You know, he didn't throw shade. He wasn't being a dick, right. but he was like, I can't buy that. Carlin wrote some of the best material of his career during those specials, but he also got pretty dark. His daughter Kelly told us that kind of comedy got mixed reviews at the Carlin household. My mom hated that stuff. She loved his goofier stuff. I love his goofy, whimsical stuff. And yet, you knew that there would at least be one or two moments in the show where he would just take a sledgehammer to your innocent, naive understanding of the world in some way (laughs) and shatter it. It just seems to me, seems to me, that only a really low IQ population could have taken this beautiful continent, this magnificent American landscape that we inherited. Well, actually, we stole it from the Mexicans and the Indians, but (laughs) hey, it was nice when we stole it. It looked pretty good. It was pristine. Paradise. Have you seen it lately? Have you taken a good look at it lately? It's fucking embarrassing. Only a nation of unenlightened half-wits could have taken this beautiful place and turned it into what it is today, a shopping mall. A big fucking shopping mall. You know that? I started to really hold it in some ways as like the task of the Zen master who has to come along with the stick and wake you up as you start to fall asleep during meditation. And so it, it, it was kind of like that, you know, he really was the, the chief waker upper uh, for so many of us. And I think that's why people crave him so much these days. Even though some of his material got dark and angry, it was clear to the people around him that he never lost his love for stand-up. Carlin loved the craft of stand-up so much, he would make time to mentor new comedians trying to break into the business. Liz Mealy was a teenager living in New Jersey, dreaming of becoming a stand-up. She came up with a list of 90 famous comedians she looked up to and wrote them letters asking for advice. Only two responded. The first was Judd Apatow. He emailed me back the next day. I think he told me to stay in school, but he had written back to me, and that was, like, amazing. The second person called her on the phone. And I remember this so clear. I was watching a Sandra Bullock movie, and I was home alone, and I'm never home alone. And I pick up, and he's like, hey, is this Liz? And I go, yeah. He goes, it's George Carlin. And I'm, I'm like, I'm not joking. You know, I'm on a phone attached to a wall. Like, I wish, like, even just my dad's there, so I could just be like, George Carlin's on the phone. This is crazy. So I was like, hi. And, you know, he's like, I got your letter. He's like, I'm very proud of you. Have you started? I said, not yet, because I was 15. And he was just like, do you have any questions? So I asked a bunch of questions. He gave answers. We were on the phone for probably 10, 15 minutes. And then he said, he's like, hey, I'm going to send you something. And he actually still have it. It's um, a signed headshot that says, go do it. 
Carlin told her she could write him any time, and she took him up on that offer. Mealy says they swapped emails for years, and once when she invited him to lunch, he even said yes. So when I was 19, I met him in a hotel lobby and got lunch with him. And this was like, my dad gave me his nice camera. Again, this is before, this is like I have a flip phone. Sure, of course. He gave me his nice camera to take a picture. Mealy had started performing at that point. And at that lunch, Carlin really helped her with something she was struggling with. I couldn't figure out how you made things flow, how you went from topic to topic where it seems seamless. Now it seems like such a dumb thing. But he took out his computer and he showed me how he organized his stand-up and how he would put new bits into it and how he would memorize things. And it sounds so boring, but I was so excited. Talk about having like a teacher that showed you all their notes. A few years after that meeting, Mealy wrote to him with some exciting news. I was 22 years old when I was on TV for the first time. I did uh, Live at Gotham, which was like the new premium blend. Oh, I did Live at Gotham. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I did Live at Gotham. I was 22 years old, and let's say I filmed it in March or whatever. It was coming out in June. So I emailed him to be like, hey, my first TV credit's coming out, da da da, da. This is when it's going to be. And he emailed me just to be like, I'm so excited to watch it. And then two days later, he died. Liz Mealy wasn't the only person we talked to who got a message from Carlin not long before he died. Kevin Smith got one, too. It's not quite as heartwarming, but it's still authentically George. Not too long before he passed away, he called up and he left the message. He goes, Kevin, George Carlin, just want you to know, um, I'm checking into a rehab. Nothing, nothing all that big a deal. Uh, I'm just trying to get ahead of something before it gets ahead of me. I'm enjoying, enjoying the wine a little bit too much lately, so I'm going to take some time off and reprogram. That's all it is and, and so so forth. He's going, okay, fuck the church, bye. And he hung up. <laughs> George Carlin died on June 22, 2008 in Santa Monica. He was 71 years old. His old friend, Randy Jurgensen, told us about some of George's final wishes. When George passed on, he was cremated. And he wanted to, you know, be in the neighborhood. His brother, Pat, sort of ran the show. And so we went to 121st Street. We went to the uh, 712 bar. We went to the bar on... Broadway, and we wound up at the Hudson River. And each one of the places, they would throw some of George's ashes. He scattered throughout the neighborhood and wound up in the Hudson River. And of course, while we were doing that, you know, Pat and the rest of the people, they were all smoking pot. Everybody was smoking pot. And that's what we did with George. George Carlin has been gone for 15 years. His comedy offered clarity in a crazy world. He gave us permission to laugh at the absurdity of it all. And as his daughter Kelly told us, his absence is still felt strongly today. We all miss him so much. And I people ask me all the time, what would he say? What would he say? What would he say? Well, you know what? We don't know what he would say because he was George Carlin and no one else will ever be. Thanks so much for listening to The Hull. If you liked our show, you can give us a follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Our next episode drops next week. 
The whole live show is now streaming on Netflix. I'm Cristela Alonzo. The Hall is a production of Netflix Podcasts and Netflix is a Joke Radio. The show is produced by Radio Point, hosted by me, Cristela Alonzo. Executive producers are Gideon Evans, Alex Bach, Daniel Powell, Houston Snyder, and Sabrina Fonfetter. Directed by Gideon Evans. Written by Gideon Evans and David Fox. Produced by Taylor Kowalski and David Fox. Edited by David Fox. Scoring by Roddy Nickpour. Recorded by Kate Moldenhauer. Mixed by Kat Ayosa. Talent booking and consulting by Cultivated Entertainment. Special thanks to Emily Bazelon, Kelly Carlin, Reginald Hudlin, Randy Jurgensen, Jay Leno, Liz Mealy, Lorraine Newman, Colin Quinn, Kevin Smith, James Sullivan, and Steve Hallis. Sound services provided by Great City Post.